Our scripture passage this morning is Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. While we're sending people out, is Audrey Prater in the house? There she is. Stand up for us, Audrey. You got your hands full, huh? <laughs> uh, so y'all know Audrey, one of our members. Today is her uh, last Sunday that I'm praying for about three months and then return, uh, but maybe not. So Kevin took a job in which, Deco- which Dakota? North Dakota. So she'll be heading uh, with the kiddos in tow and uh, we'll be there for three to four months, maybe more. So I want to pray for her as she's sent off as well. Thanks for standing with the baby. Let's pray. I uh, thank you for the Praters. I'm so thankful for their, uh, their life and their service. They've plugged in and served this church so well for so many years. And I pray uh, most immediately for the drive up uh, that you would give Audrey favor. The kiddos would, would travel well and uh, look forward. I know they look forward to a sweet reunion with Kevin. And I pray that they would be able to find a local church there to commit to, even if it is temporary. We would love to see them back here, but we trust your will and pray that you would lead them with clarity and that you'd bless their transition uh, with lots going on. And God, we also continue to pray for Misty Gutting, who's uh, had some setbacks and has a long, even longer road ahead. And so pray for her, pray for the surgery that will be forthcoming, that you would give the doctors wisdom and skill as they do some really delicate brain surgery on Misty soon. I pray for the family, I pray for Brian, pray for Graham, uh, pray for... uh, Misty's side of the family, Debbie and the rest, uh, that you would use them as a means of encouragement, sustain them. Uh, They need your help desperately. And so we pray that you would sustain them during this difficult time. We pray for uh, just success. Pray for Misty that she would trust you uh, in the midst of the difficulty. Increase her trust and her joy and her love for you. God, we also pray for Richard Farmer and pray for his continued progress, pray for continued recovery after his surgery on his back, that you would be with him, that you would be with Kim and the rest of the family. And uh, we want to see progress and healing, but if that's not your will, we want to see spiritual growth in the midst of it, that even though all of us, as we outwardly waste away, we can be inwardly renewed. And God, we give thanks for new life as well. Thank you for Blake Tarver, and we pray for... Luke and Cammie, you would be them as they transition. We give you praise for for health and life, and we pray for uh, them as they transition and pray for uh, her little soul even now, Lord, that you would grab her and she would love you all of her days. God, we pray that you would continue to raise up from among us people with a passion for foster care and adoption. The need is great even here in the city of Abilene, so would you continue to move people to care for orphans in this way. And pray that you would sustain those that are currently in the work. Thank you for their selfless love. And God, as we turn to your word, would you incline our hearts to hear your testimonies? 
Would you open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but your word stands forever. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Back on September 6th of 2018, there was a 26-year-old accountant named Botham Jean. He was shot by an off-duty cop who had mistakenly entered his apartment rather than hers. And she was indicted and months later in the court, his little brother, Brant Jean, had the opportunity to speak to his brother's murderer. What would he say? Well, he wished that she would go to God. He said, I I wish that you would go to God with your guilt. And he himself granted forgiveness and says, God will forgive you if you go to him. And he said, I want the best for you. And he went on to say that her best would be her giving her life to Christ. And then he actually asked, can I leave the stand and go give her a hug? In 2015, Shooter killed, a shooter killed nine people in a church in Charleston. And it was just a couple days in this case after losing mothers and sisters and sons and husbands and wives. They appeared in court for the murderer's hearing and they were given an opportunity to make a statement. First up was Nadine Collier who had lost her mother Ethel. With tear-filled eyes, she says, I forgive you. She says, you took something really precious from me. I'll never talk to her ever again. I'll never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. Back in 2006, a man stormed an Amish schoolhouse and killed five girls and then took his own life. The community at large forgave him. They attended his funeral. They donated money to the killer's widow and the killer's children. The world doesn't know what to do with these types of instances. When the community of Christ loves their enemy, we shine. We're salt and light. We're a contrast society. We're a city set on a hill. We're a counterculture. We get to see the call to this type of countercultural living in Matthew chapter 5. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew's the first book in our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And we're finally finishing up Matthew chapter 5. We've actually been in Matthew chapter 5 for eight weeks. And it's been instructive and it's been challenging. The Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. It's the charter for the life of the New Covenant community. And my prayer is that God has been molding us into this contrast society by His Spirit through his word. And so let's consider the words of the king together. Look at Matthew chapter five, verse 43. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, in these previous verses, we've seen, if you've been with us in Matthew chapter 5, that he would, Jesus would normally say, you've heard it was said, and then he would quote something from the old covenant law, and love your neighbor does come from the law, it comes from Leviticus chapter 19, and over time, 
the Jewish people had begun to define their neighbor as exclusively their fellow Jewish people, their fellow Israelites. But even if you took that route and interpreted that way, that's quite a different statement than hate your enemy, isn't it? In fact, there's no verse in the Old Testament that says hate your enemy. But the Jewish people of the time, they had come to that conclusion, probably from several verses that do speak clearly about God's judgments on his enemies, on evildoers. Let me just read a few. Psalm 5.5 says, God hates all evildoers. You don't hear that kind of verse very often in church. It normally doesn't make the coffee cups. But there it is. In Psalm 26, David says, I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. In Psalm 58, David begs God to break the teeth of his enemies. In Psalm 109, David asks that their days be few and their posterity cut off. It's known as this category known as the imprecatory Psalms where people would pray imprecations on their enemies, curses. Psalm 139 says this, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And then, of course, you have all the teaching in the Old Testament where God told his people to come in and and take over and to move the enemies out. Clear them from the land and show them no mercy. And beyond the Bible and these, again, none of this is saying hate your enemy. None of it's commanding the people to hate your enemy at all. But there was also then beyond that, some writings that were really influential in the first century from a Jewish sect known as the Qumran community. And they had this rule that went like this. They are to love all the sons of light. And here it says real explicitly, hate all the sons of darkness. Well, that's not the Bible. That's extra biblical Jewish writing. But my point is, this has basically become Jewish folk wisdom or lack wisdom as Jesus will say, because of these types of verses. And Jesus here is correcting a wrong conclusion, a false inference. He's saying, no, 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 you don't hate your enemy. On the contrary, you do the opposite. Look what he says in verse 44. You've heard that, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. King Jesus says, no, 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 you're not to hate them. You're to love them. Love your enemy. This is revolutionary. This is one of Jesus's most radical moral directives. And remember what the Jewish people were expecting in a Messiah. Their expectation was that this king would come in and clean house, a militaristic Messiah, one who would come in and destroy their enemies. He would come in and he would wipe out Rome and elevate them. You remember that time in Samaria where James and John are like, Lord, you want me to call down fire? I can do that. They thought the king of Israel would come and destroy the nations and elevate the Jewish people. For them, the kingdom meant the destruction of their enemies. But Jesus is a different kind of king. It's an upside down kingdom. He's forming a new way of being Israel. He's breaking and shattering expectations. Listen to what he says in the gospel of Luke chapter 17. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He's saying the kingdom's not coming like you think it's coming. 
It doesn't come down all at once. We're going to learn later in the Gospel of Matthew that it's subtle and it's slow. In John 18, Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom's not from the world. So when this kingdom of heaven invades the world, God doesn't launch missiles, but he sends in the meek and the mourners and the merciful. We're not waging war according to the flesh. Among us, there's no enemy hatred, there's enemy love. And Jesus, of course, is the model for this. He could have come in and destroyed his opposition. Flip over to Matthew chapter 26. Leave your finger Matthew 5, we'll be back there, but flip over to chapter 26. Look at verse 51. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? He could have done that if he wanted. That's just not his way. Look a little bit later in chapter 26 at verse 67. What does he do instead? He absorbs it. Verse 67 says, then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Jesus could have wiped him out with a snap of his fingers, but he doesn't. He loves his enemies. He doesn't fight his enemies. He lays down his life for them. And Jesus on the cross being executed the Son of God, punished and crucified. And what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is also our example. Stephen followed his example. As Stephen's being stoned. What does he say? Being pelted to death by rocks. And he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Christians are to love their enemies. Now, it's real important. Love may be the most, one of the most important words in the Bible, but also one of the most misunderstood words in current culture. Love is love. It's very confused. Love, though, we've got to understand is, is not merely just being nice. Love's not always being a doormat. I think Christians think that sometimes. Jesus has some very sharp rebukes all through the gospels. And so love and correction, love and even rebuke are not at odds, biblically speaking. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is tell the truth and correct error. In chapter 23, Jesus does some, quite honestly, some harsh name calling. He says, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers. He tells them when you convert someone to your way, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. Surely we would say that Jesus was being loving in such instances. According to Jesus, love is not simply being nice. It's not allowing error to go unchallenged. Love is compatible with correction and with rebuke. And remember how the Bible defines love. It's action-oriented in what's our basis is the cross. 1 John 3, 16, I want you to know it. By this we know love. Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to do the same. Love is giving of self 
for the good of another. In other words, to love our enemies is to act for their good. It's an action verb. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He says, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. Fake it till you make it. Act as if you did. Work for their good. Here's how Jesus puts it in the Gospel of Luke. I say to you who here love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And we got to confess, historically speaking, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You're thinking, holy cow, do you know the history of the church? Christians have failed at this miserably. And there are in some ways in which we have, especially the famous test case is the Crusades. What about the Crusades? Wasn't that a bunch of Christians murdering their enemies, the Muslims? Well, we have to remember many, if not most, of those who killed in the name of Christ were not actually doing so in the name of Christ. Clearly not. But often in the name of power. Or greed. In the name of the state. This is why a state church is always a bad idea. This is why we're Baptists. We're, we're always have been separate from the state. Someone has said when you mix the state and the church, it's like mixing manure and ice cream. The church is the ice cream. The state's the manure. The manure is going to be just fine. It's going to ruin your ice cream. So how do we love our enemies then? Well... Praying for them is the best way to start. Notice again in verse 44 what he says. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The wisdom of Jesus shines here. I mean, whenever someone is troubling you, this is a great first step to loving them. Pray for them. Intercede for them. Plead the throne on their behalf. God will begin to change your heart towards them. Try it. Think of that person. Who's your enemy? Who gets your blood boiling? Who is it that you cannot stand? Now point at them. No, I don't see any fingers. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a family member. Whoever, begin to pray for them and see what God does. Love your enemies. Pray for them. It's consistently taught all over the New Testament. Let me read just a few other verses. Romans chapter 12, verse 14 says this. Paul clearly reflecting on the teaching of the Lord here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, beloved. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Love your enemies. That's Paul. Here's how Peter puts it. What credit is it? If when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We love our enemies. Probably familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritans, of course, were the enemy. The Samaritans were the enemies of Israel, and so the parable of the Good Samaritan is as much about ethnic tension as it is anything. And in the story, Jesus has the enemy, the Samaritan, loving the Israelite. And so Jesus broadens the definition of neighbor. We're still to love our neighbor. Now Jesus says, that even includes your enemy. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a creative commentary on Jesus' command to love our enemy. I remember being deeply impacted on a personal way by some enemy love from some Christians. In fact, there's some of our members. Are Gerald and Deborah Frazier here? I don't see them. I get to pick on them while they're not here. <laughs> so I'm from Eula. They're from Eula. And so we were, I was probably 16 or 17, was not a Christian. And I knew the Frasers prayed for me. You know, the Lord uses a lot of things to bring us to faith, a whole lot of things. And I'm very confident one of the means for which I'm a Christian is because the Frasers prayed for me in high school because I was a punk. And so a buddy of mine, we were bored one night, and uh, we come over. He said, you know what? What's a good idea? Let's get a bunch of firecrackers and go put them on the Frasers, you know, right there on their doorstep in the middle of the night. So we get a bunch of smoke bombs, and there's one of those big old, you know, those things of black cats that are like, you know, they last for three minutes. And we go, and we sneak up, and we, we light the thing, and we take off three in the morning, and, you know, it goes and goes and goes. And it's out in you. I mean, you could hear it for a mile. And we run back to his truck. Well, he had this four-by-four truck, and you know how those dirt roads, they pave them, so you've got the road. And then, you know, we were off on the side, but it was a four-by-four. He had these big new tires on it. We weren't worried about it. Well, we get back in. We're about to take off. And, man, we can't go anywhere. We're stuck. I mean, a little, little four-banger Nissan, man, we can't get anywhere. And so we see lights coming on, and what are we going to do? Well, we jump out of the truck, and we just head for the fields. Again, we're out in the country. We just head for the field, not knowing at all what we're going to do, but I know that I'm not getting busted. This guy wasn't from Eula. I'm not getting busted. You can get busted. He's like, well, it doesn't matter. No, it matters. I'm not getting busted. So we ran to the field, and they start coming to the truck. We start making, like, cow noises and mooing and whatever. <laughs> but then we hear this... And my friend's like, no, that's it. We got to get back. They're slicing my tires again. They were, we were, you know, he was 18. He had paid for these brand new tires. And I'm like, we ain't going nowhere. <laughs> All four. And so we just waited out. They finally go back in and we start heading. We just start walking. So we're on a dirt road. And I don't know, it wasn't like 30 minutes later, some lights are coming behind us. And so, all right, what do we do? Do we run? Forget it. Let's just, we didn't know if it was them or not. Let's just walk. Sure enough, Gerald Frazier pulls up. And what he'd done, he's actually pulled the stem, the core of the stem valve. So he didn't slice the tires. He's poured the, pulled the core out, but he threw them in the field. So there was, we weren't finding them, but he picks us up in the middle of the night. He drives us all the way to Abilene to the 24-7 Walmart, buys us some new cores, drives us back, plugs us in, airs up our tires. And I was not a Christian. I just remember thinking, why in the world would he do that? I'm sure he was angry. It's probably why he did it and why he threw him. But he repented and he made it right and he loved his enemy. (laughs) 
Uh, I wish I could say it bore fruit in my life. It didn't. I didn't know those little tools existed, so I went and bought one of those tools and started popping off all my friends' trucks. <laughs> Do you love your enemies? The first step is to identify them. Who are they? Who is it? Who is it legitimately that gets your blood boiling? Name them. Family member, could be a church member, could be a boss, coworker. Maybe it's a group of people that you just find that you just despise. Maybe it's Republicans, maybe it's Democrats, maybe it's Muslims, maybe it's LBGTQ. Who is it that is your enemy? And Jesus says, love them and pray for them. It's one of the characteristics that makes us distinct. Makes us different. Do you remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 23? We're those that we prioritize relationships over corporate worship. Remember what Jesus said? If you're there and you remember he has something against you, drop your gift at the altar and go make it right and then worry about worship. Or as we saw last week, we're slapped on one cheek, we turn to them the other also. When we're asked to go one mile, we go two. We're different. We pursue reconciliation. We're peacemakers, right? That's how he started in chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's what God does. Therefore, that's what we do. Why? Look at verse 45. Love your enemies, pray for them. Verse 45, so that... You may be sons of your father who's in heaven. So that, here's the purpose, love your enemies. For in so doing, you show yourself to be sons of the father. Like father, like sons. We love our enemies. Not to become children of God, but because we are. You notice he says that, sons of your father. He's already our father, so we should act like children. This enemy love, it's the proper outworking of what it looks like to be sons and daughters of God. That's why. Why else, though? Look at 45 again. So that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven, for because he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus here, he calls nonbelievers evil and unjust because that's what they are and that's what we were before coming to Christ. And Jesus here reads the pages of creation and finds the love of God. He provides, and he provides for all. It's what theologians call common grace. You know, God shows special grace to his children, but he shows common grace to everyone. He makes his son to rise, and he sends rain, which at this time period was a divine blessing. For us, rain typically means more potholes in Abilene. But for them, it was crucial in the day before irrigation and electric water pumps. Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus reasons here, look, if you only loved your friends, you're no different than the unbelievers. You're no different than the pagans. They do that. Even tax collectors, which remember, that was the scum of the earth of Jesus' day. Even they love those who love them. Even the Gentiles greet their friends. Even Italian mobsters look out for their own. Even the worst gangbanger has mama tattooed on his arm. 
That's, that's normal human nature. We're to be different. We're to be distinct. Christians shouldn't merely do the same. No, we're different. We're, we're not the ordinary. We're extraordinary in that sense. Our lives, they're not shaped by culture or societal norms. Our lives are characterized by the character of God. And that clearly shows forth as we love those who don't love us. And then Jesus has this concluding statement in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This summary statement, not only of these verses, but all of chapter 5. The statement is, be perfect. Perfection? Surely not. Surely not serious. Well, he is serious. What could he mean? We can't be perfect, that's true, if that means we are without sin. That'll never be the case. The key is just the definition of the word. This word is the word teleos. You can kind of hear our telos in the word, right? Sometimes translated mature, entire, complete, blameless. The idea is not that we don't have sin, but it's that we're fully mature. We're wholeheartedly complete. We have a unified heart for God. One scholar says this word describes something perfectly suited to the end for which it was created. It's a virtue-related word. In other words, it's something that we grow into. It's something that we strive and aspire to. Probably my favorite passage that helps us understand this idea of perfection, maturity, is Philippians 3. Listen to the Spirit through the Apostle Paul. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, and that's the verb form, teleao. Not that I'm perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are teleos, perfect, mature, Think this way. And if anything, if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. The Apostle Paul says, I'm not perfect, but I'm forgetting what lies behind and I'm straining forward to Christ. And those of us who are that way are perfect. See, part of Christian perfection is realizing you'll never be perfect, but it's forgetting the past and striving towards the future. It's another way, of, another way of saying what he said in chapter 5, verse 20, that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's another way of saying your righteousness must be greater. And remember what that greater righteousness is. It's not just being squeaky clean on the outside, but it's having a true heart for God. It's the law on your heart righteousness, the hearts of flesh righteousness. It's new covenant righteousness. It's having a whole new person, not just some external actions like the Pharisees and scribes. The idea is wholeness or singleness of devotion, wholehearted dedication to God and all of life orientation toward God, unified in heart and action. As one New Testament scholar from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary puts it, to say the disciples must be teleos as God is teleos is to say that they must be whole or virtuous, singular in who they are. Not one thing on the outside, but another on the inside. And that's the key. He's been doing it the whole sermon. He'll do it next week. 
the idea of not being one thing externally and another internally. Go ahead and look there at chapter 6, verse 1. This is the difference between disciples and hypocrites. Beware, Jesus says, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, in the streets, that they may be praised by others. That's the deal. That's the issue. That's the difference. They have one thing going on the outside, but inwardly, they just want the praise of people. Look at verse 5, chapter 6. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. What does perfect mean? It means to be non-hypocritical. Flip over to Matthew chapter 23. Look at verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Their heart's not in it for God. Their heart is in it for themselves. Look at verse 24. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you. By the way, these chapter 23 and chapter 5 are kind of complementary chapters. Chapter 5 has been blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, flourishing are. You know what the opposite of a blessing is? It's a woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat, swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, First clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. It's the opposite of maturity, the opposite of perfection. Flip back a couple chapters to Matthew 19. Verse 16. The rich young ruler, behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who's good. If you would would enter life, keep the commandments. He said, then which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, teleos, 
Go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus knows that this guy doesn't have a heart for God. He's got a heart for his stuff. Yeah, I've kept some of these, but there's one main thing that I have a divided heart about. Perfection is not having a divided heart. It's having a unified heart. No false God, no idols, but a heart for the Lord. You must be perfect, whole, completely unified, Jesus says, as your Father in heaven is perfect. This wording here, really similar to Leviticus 19, where we're called to be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Our character is to be defined by the character of God. And it's a wholeheartedness. And friends, Abilene is filled with Pharisees and scribes. It's filled with people who have some external trappings of religion, but do not have a heart for God. They're not wholehearted. They're what Jesus would call hypocrites. The question is, where are you today? Maybe you're not sure. Let me encourage you to read back through Matthew chapter 5. Read the whole Sermon on the Mount. And see if Jesus paints a picture of you as he paints a picture of his disciples. Always imperfect, absolutely. But do you have a wholehearted heart for the Lord or are you just here checking a box? Another way to ask it, is your Christianity any more than Sunday mornings? Is Jesus Lord over your life? Not just an hour this morning. The call is the same really for us all. is to turn from sin and turn to the Lord. Maybe you're not sure. You want to walk through any of this, talk through any of this. I would love to talk with you. Our elders will be up here up front after the service. We'd love to talk more with you. Jesus says, be perfect as your father is perfect. And of course, we don't live up to this calling. In fact, we don't live up to a whole bunch of this chapter, do we? This is challenging stuff. And most of this goes against the grain of our culture. It's against the air we breathe. And this high call should throw us back then to where Jesus started in these Beatitudes. Chapter 5, verse 2, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The idea is contrition, brokenness. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the idea is mourn over sin. We often fail to keep these commands. We often fail to love our enemies. But we can praise God that he didn't fail to love his enemies which is us. Romans chapter five, verse eight. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, declared in the right by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray together. Father, the high calling of Jesus throws us back 
to a place of contrition and brokenness. And that's where you want us. That's the person that you smile upon. So I pray that if there's anyone here that is not broken in spirit, poor in spirit, mourning over the sin, that by your spirit, you would produce that in them. Show them just how far they fall short. And in the very next breath, show them the grace and mercy of Jesus. You don't leave us in our sin. Even though we were enemies of you because of our rebellion, you have redeemed us. You have reconciled us to you by the death of your son. And God, I pray that the enemy love that you showed to us would then be foundational and fuel as we go and love our enemies. Help us. We need it. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.